This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello, and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at all of our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, through the lens of disability. I am your host, Nicole, and I am thrilled to have you here. And we have a special episode here on deck, and I am joined by a very special guest. And uh, I will let them introduce themselves. Hello, Ravia. Hi. Uh, so yeah, my name is Rabia Stabi Stichter. I'm uh, born and raised in Europe in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and my ethnic background is Indian and Egyptian. So I'm both Asian and African. And um, what is relevant for this podcast is that I have several disabilities, uh, both neurological, uh, visible and invisible, as they would call it. Uh, I have several, um, I'm on the spectrum, and I have several autoimmune diseases. I have uh, several uh, intestinal problems and diseases and syndromes, and that combined makes me a spoonie, as we would call it. Uh, but more, more, more than that, I am a pop culture expert and marketing strategist internationally, and I travel around the world talking about pop culture horror and stuff. Uh, on Clubhouse, I uh, was the reigning queen for two years as the queen of horror in the horror group chat, and um, I love horror is my my favorite genre of all the genres, so I love talking about it. Yes. Awesome. No, I'm so, so excited to have you on. And yes, I crossed paths, uh, I guess you could say, with Rabia through Access Horror, which we've done a couple of episodes here um, about. And Rabia was an amazing panelist and shared some, I think, absolutely phenomenal insights and thoughts about just so many different components about the intersection of horror and disability. And I really love that you also hit on, um, you know, just kind of the way, like, pop culture in general, because I think it all kind of comes together about, like, representation in media representation in the arts and how it all kind of is super meaningful and worth talking about um so Robbie, talking about access horror i don't know if you want to share a little bit about how you got involved with access horror a little bit about your experiences yeah, yeah. So um, Access Horror for me is family. Um, it uh, was founded by Ariel Basca and uh, they are a close friend. If I am a queen, then she is my co-queen. They're my co-queen, my co-duchess of dread. 
Um, we met during the pandemic on Twitter. Oh no, on Clubhouse. Sorry, not on Twitter. On Clubhouse. Uh, during this weird car room that was staying open twenty four hours, mm-hmm. and kind of became the resident, uh, Wikipedia's or Google's, uh, for for all the horror fans that wanted to branch out from just mainstream Western horror. Um. We both have an Im- immense passion for international horror, for Asian horror, and, and for niche and like extreme stories and trying to find like these fringe places uh, within the horror scope, which is very, very broad. So yeah, we became uh, friends who spoke uh, together on South by Southwest about how disability also affects um, uh, filmmaking and the process of filmmaking the physical process of filmmaking as well as the mental process of filmmaking. Uh, so we, yeah, we were presenting at South by and um, yeah, we, I, I helped out with uh, some of their uh, short films. And like I said, it's family uh, at this point. <laughs> so when uh, Ariel said, I'm doing a, a festival, I was like, okay, I'm down. I'm in, tell me what you need for me. I will love to participate. Let me know what you want me, uh, what you want me for. So she got me to um, host a panel and then be part of a, a different panel as well. And that's actually how that came to be. But Ariel and I throughout the year uh, still collaborate on uh, Final Girls Berlin. We always do this um, disability um, talk or presentation. Uh, we've done a Ghouls Magazine, uh, Horror Disability Day. So yeah, there's a lot of collaboration happening between Ariel and I specifically about this. And I think we even out, you know, uh, if you t- talk about intersectionality, the two of us together, like our powers combined, we we have almost full representation <laughs> of of a lot of different uh, identities. Yeah, yeah, that's I I really appreciate you talking about the importance of intersectionality because that's something that we've hit on a bit um, just in talking about various films. Um, now, especially I think in, at least in my experience right now, in trying to like mm-hmm. sift through various films that are you know, U.S. based, can be really hard to find really intersectional representation of of disability, um, in yeah. horror because we all know that disability experiences across different uh, identities the way mm. that you interact with you know kind of the the medical system all of these components are so different and it's yeah so vital to talk about the you know the differences and yes. and how it's important to put spotlights on those yeah. experiences oh definitely definitely and i think that's you know, the power of podcasts like these and other ways that we come together online and offline is to make it known to the world that these perspectives and these lenses exist and that you can be proud to look through these lenses as well. I think for for so long, we've silenced ourselves, especially when you look at previous generations, and we've tried to mold ourselves to fit in um, in order to 
you know, maybe face a little bit less scrutiny or just survive in general. And we've now finally hit this time in this zeitgeist where speaking out is more important than staying silent. Um, so, and that's that, you know, at the forefront of all these different identities, you know, in this intersectional um, uh, discourse, the people who have, the people of color with disabilities and on top of that, a queer, you know, identity are the ones who are at the forefront. They get the first blow and more so than any other combination. So thinking of that, it's it's important to to realize that something might not affect you now, but it will affect you later because once they go through the other layers, they get to you eventually. So yeah. Absolutely. Now, one thing that you you mentioned um and I know that this was I think the topic of a couple of different panels at Access Horror mm-hmm. that I thought were really really great um were around kind of the importance of these voices you know we we talk about disability representation you know within the story and on camera but you mentioned the filmmaking and really the behind the camera um and the creation of the story um yeah was that do you think that that was, um, I guess for me, when I, when Ariel had reached out and was, you know, saying, hey, this is going on, um, would love for you to, if you, if you got the weekend free and want to check out the sessions, it would be great. I was really impressed and thought, well, this is really speaking to a different aspect of importance here. Um, I don't know if you wanted to speak on, and I think you've hit perhaps on a couple of things, but you know, why, why was participating in something like Access War important in terms of perhaps ex- expanding that conversation to yeah. a holistic look of representation? Uh, well, it was very important to me because it's something that it's seen still often as secondary. Uh, uh, my experience even at South by was still very secondary. Like it felt like, oh, disability is an afterthought. Like there is a disability desk, but not everything was accessible. And accessibility is something that is still so much missing in society, even though almost 30% of the world is this, you know, has a disability or is disabled at the moment. Mm -hmm. And as you, everyone is guaranteed to become disabled at one point in their life. So it's so weird that we do not anticipate or think about it unless it's part of our direct um, environment, or if, if you're the one, uh, you know, going through it. So having these talks having something that combines things people want to be interested in which is horror movies and then switching that up and presenting it through a lens of disability with all the different types of people 
that can represent a disability is very, very important. It's not just a white guy in a wheelchair. It's also a, a deaf black girl. It's also a trans Asian, um, you know, uh, autistic person. So it's it, it, there are so many layers to disability that still need to be acknowledged. And then on top of that, I think we've always felt the most comfortable if you're looking from pop culture perspective within the horror genre, within the fantastic genre, because that's the place where we could at least imagine ourselves being as, as people from this community. And it's the, it's the community that has been the most harsh, but also the most open and friendly and, um, uh, accepting of us uh, and that comes obviously from a history if you look at movies like Freaks and you know how uh, even in, in something like Nightmare on Elm Street where Freddy Krueger you know in a way could be uh, uh, interpreted as someone with a disability there's so many ways where we can be both the villain, villain and the victim uh, within this genre and I think that expressing that and showing all those different layers different types of representation and making it an open conversation is very very important yeah I love that I think that there's in lots of conversations I've had with folks you know lots of people ask the question of why horror um you know why do you like horror what is it about um you know, scary movies that, that gets to you. And there's a whole vast world of responses. Yeah. But there is something special, I think, about how horror and, you know, kind of fantasy, um, yeah. sci-fi, etc. do create unique stories of, yeah. of folks that I think we do have a unique ability to relate to. Yeah. Um, I totally agree. Uh, to give an example of that, even, I think that a lot of people, when they think of horror, especially when we're talking about people who normally know mainstream horror, right? They think of a particular movie. Maybe they'll think of Friday the 13th or they'll think of Scream or something like that. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of people don't realize is that horror is the most real of all the film genres. It's the first one to have countercultures. It's the first one to have social justice. It's the first one to have some type of expression of what is actually happening in the world. And then if you take that broader into the fantastic genre, so you include sci-fi and fantasy and anime as well, those are the genres where people can express realness, even if it's done through make-believe systems, worlds, and and technology. And um, it's always the first place where you can find this new placement for yourself. It's the, the easiest place to insert yourself into. So yeah, it, it's so much broader than people often think. And even when a lot of people think of horror, they'll go to these mainstream places, but People forget that, you know, Shimmer's uh, List is also a horror movie. We Need to Talk About Kevin is also a horror movie. How um, 
people could misconstrue like even like something like Titanic as a horror movie. Why? Something horrific happens to all these people in that mm. film. So, yeah, just because, you know, they're not, uh, just because the Oscars do not acknowledge um, these human sentiments uh, because they they do not perceive them as highbrow enough um, does not mean that that horror is not a very, very legit genre to, to be into. And it's the most real one of all genres. Yeah. Um a question that I want want to ask just because it feels you mentioned like the Oscars and one of the things that is always um a conversation, you know, or isn't recognized by yeah. Oscars. But one of the things that I I always like to sprinkle into the conversation too is that well, right that's horrible but you know if we're looking at disability how many folks with disabilities have won oscars for playing characters with disabilities versus how many people who uh, are non-disabled have won oscars for playing disabled roles yeah. um, and i think one of the things that we're seeing I think we're seeing more and more across all um, genres, but something I've seen, I think a little bit more in mm -hmm. horror. Um, again, horror kind of being a, a leader in this way is that you're seeing more disabled folks taking yeah. on these roles. And I wanted to know, if, you know, kind of what your thoughts were on on that where we are um yeah. so i think we still have a very very long way to go when it comes to representation right i think we finally now hit an era at least in horror but not even across the board when it comes to film where at least a disabled person whole character arc or whole personality is defined by their disability because that is what used to, used to be so, right? Someone's in a wheelchair, their whole life is about being in a wheelchair. Apparently, they don't have hobbies. They don't have music interests. They don't like, you know, going out with their friends. No, they're, every day, every moment that they live, they're written as if the wheelchair is the only thing they think of. Or, oh, you're you're autistic there's only one type of autism it's not a spectrum there's like one type it's the rain man and that's all we know yeah. um you know it's a, a so high support needs low masking whereas i mean as someone who's on the spectrum not only on the autism end but also the adhd spectrum I, i'm high functioning as they would call it which i have i'm low support needs high masking but I still have it. I'm still on the spectrum. <laughs> Where is my representation, right? So um, nowadays, at least seeing actors with disabilities cast and actually have their characters be more than just this singular thing is already progress. But the bar was in hell and we've now <laughs> raised it to the floor, basically. <laughs> Um, so it's still on the floor. It's, the bar is low. The bar is very low to clear. And 
most of the companies out there, production companies are barely clearing it. I think that's also one of the reasons why people love A24 so much mm -hmm. as a specific production company, because whatever they're doing, they do it so well, you know, and even when they buy stuff, I mean, they at least curate it in a way that makes you feel like, oh, okay, I can trust these people. Uh, and that comes to disability representation as well. And that comes to uh, race representation as well. They do things just so well, even now during the strikes, they're the only production company still working because they said like, okay, these are your demands. Yes, we'll pay it. We'll, we'll do it. We'll, we'll be a fair company. Um, and I think that's admirable where, you know, 99% of the other production companies are just in it, not just in it for the money, but they don't have anything to say for themselves. They're just buying experiences in order to capitalize on it, which I can understand because that's what you do as a company, but they don't have any brand value or any moral value attached to that money-making machine, basically. And that's that's what's eventually is going to do them under because a lot of these companies now they're losing projects or they've been hiring people inappropriately or they've been burning out through their workers, through their writers, through their actors. So uh, to bring it back to, sorry, I mean, there's a whole side tangent, but to bring it, to, to bring it back to representation. Uh, yeah, there's definitely more representation happening. And luckily, so horror is at the forefront of this. It's the the, the one genre where we see it the most. Uh, but the bar is on the floor and needs to be raised up a little bit more. So I hope in the next 10 years, you know, the bars can be off the floor at least. Yeah. And what, going off of that, what what is, I mean, it's a really complex issue, lots of yeah. factors, but what what are ways that that can happen? Well, the, the pro yeah, ahead. so the, the, the problem lies, and I, I, I said that in one of the panels during Access Horror as well, the problem lies in wealth distribution, right? We have this long, long legacy, basically, that is affecting the film industry and any other industry out there is wealth distribution. There's a but there's like a few white old cis men that own the whole world when it comes to pop culture. And um, to quote myself uh, from one of those panels, we need them to retire permanently yeah. <laughs> and let go of this power. And until they die or retire, um, this wealth distribution is going to be skewed because in order, there's so many awesome makers out there. There are so many makers out there and produ smaller production companies who wanna do right by everyone who want to do proper representation, who want to, you know, have more uh, um, accessible um, uh, production dates and, 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 and scheduling that is not just for, to, so you can burn out uh, out of a few um, able-bodied persons, but then also, you know, have people who have disabilities work for you behind the scenes, not only in front of the camera. And, it's it, they're, they're there, but they're not getting money because the few people that hold all the money, they all feel the same way about how certain things need to go. And it's outdated, it's white supremacist, it's racist, it's ableist. 
it's all these things and until they let go of their wealth or if that gets redistributed or they let go of their power at least nothing is going to happen because they do make here and there and companies are trying to you know be more diverse as they call it or be more inclusive but it's not inclusive or diverse if you don't add seats to the table if you don't you know, kick maybe some people out of their seats at the table so that other people can sit at those seats or let at least, you know, people build their own table. We're not even allowed to build our own table at this point because they hold all the tables. Whatever tables there are, they're being held. Every time there's a new table, it gets hoarded into the bunch of tables that they are already holding. So, yeah, the, the it, it sounds... Sounds it is very complex, and definitely people on different levels should think of representation, should think of whether a story they're making is something that they should represent or should be telling. Maybe if you're telling a story about disability and you're an able bodied uh, writer or director, maybe have more people who are not able bodied involved in that project, ask for their advice, get their actual perspective. Don't use them and, and, and throw them to the side just so that you have like some type of inkling and then just go with that, you know? So there's some different layers, things you can do, uh, hire more, uh, hire more actors that are, that have disabilities that can represent the actual disability. Um, but that comes down to making the whole filmmaking process more accessible. And that comes back to the people who ha are hoarding all the power involved. So yeah, it's a top-down problem in this case. Absolutely, I, I for sure, I think it's a, a systemic approach, and it's oftentimes you know, I think lots of folks with disabilities have been said, "Oh, well, you can absolutely participate," but then you have to explain, "Well, I, that's actually not feasible." No. Because how? Like just because you've offered the invitation, there's no there's no logistical and practical way for me to actually be involved. So yeah, you have to do the work to actually make to make it accessible. And I think a lot about um one of the films that I did an episode on uh towards the beginning of the podcast, uh by mm -hmm. a place talked about um how Millie had been really factored in to the overall kind of like filming production to make sure that that was really integrated into the story yeah. and the way that things were and and I think it shows in the product. So I I I think you you hit on so many i think uh important points um i want to switch gears a bit night you were lovely enough to kind of share at the beginning um you know a little bit about kind of your journey as someone with kind of various um disabilities but can you talk a little bit about like what is your personal connection 
to disability and horror? Like, what is really for you personally, mm-hmm. like, what brought that together? Because you talked about that you love horror. <laughs> So my, my whole horror journey started as a, a lot of the really hardcore fans have this similar story very, very early. I think yeah. I was six years old and um, I come, as as I said before, from an Asian background uh, amongst us, my, uh, as well as an African background. And it's very normal for uh, grownups to watch something and to not turn it off when the kids come into the room. It's like, we're watching something. You are a child. We are the adults. This is what's on the TV. If you don't like it or if it scares you, that's on you. You should not have meddled with the grown-up TV. Um, So my aunt from India was over and uh, my mom and her and my uncle were hanging out in the living room and they were watching the thing. And my six-year-old self walked into the room. And I was like, what is that? And they were like, we're watching a movie. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm now also watching this movie. Nobody warned me. <laughs> Nobody stopped me. Um, so I watched The Thing at six years old. And I was traumatized, but at the same time intrigued. Um, and then came, uh, so the same thing culturally, if you're at parties, birthdays, whatever, the older cousins take care of the younger cousins because all the adults are having fun in a different room. And my very young, uh, <laughs> you know, South Asian uh, self was, was being uh, dropped amongst my other South Asian cousins at, you know, parties, New Year's parties, Eids, whatever was going on, holies. And my older cousins were all watching horror because they were like 16 and older. So they would watch Nightmare on Elm Street, Hellraiser. And I, me and my very, very young ass self, I would just sit and watch along. Totally scared, but very, very intrigued. And as, as growing up from that, I just kept having this push and pull with, with horror. It would intrigue me, but scare me at the same time. But then I would be intrigued why I was scared. Yep. And growing up in that, by the time that I was in my teens, I had already several disabilities that I had knowledge of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was already seen as this, well, not freak, but um, even though I had invisible disabilities, people knew something was different about me. And well, you know how harsh teens and kids are. If you're different, you're stupid, you're a freak, you're being you know weird so you're being treated as such and uh I just kind of leaned into that I was like fuck it if I'm a freak then I will just only watch the freaky stuff so I would get into like Asian horror really deeply and just hold movie marathons in my place uh once I think I was 14 or 13 um (laughs) a mom complained to my mom (laughs) because her daughter came over for like this sleepover and I had rented uh, back then on VHS all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies <laughs> and I got a, a big tub of ice cream and a bucket of popcorn I was like this is what we're gonna watch tonight I was super excited I love that shit uh she was uh traumatized <laughs> But and she didn't say it during the evening, so it wasn't until she got back home and like was afraid to like to 
to go to the bathroom by herself at night that her mom kind of knows like what's, what's what's up with you and like oh yeah robbie showed me horror movies and i was oh, like oh <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I felt at home. Those characters, those weirdos, those other people on that screen, whether it was Freddy, whether it was Pinhead, you know, even watching Scream and following Ghostface, like any Wes Craven movie, you can wake me up in the middle of the night for even the bad ones. There are no bad ones in my book. Um, you know, J-Horror, if it's a Ringu or, you know, even a uh, a Juan, uh, the Grudge, or something like that. Oh man, Ichi the Killer, Takashi Miike. That was my shit back in high school. Like I was fourteen years old watching Takashi Miike films, and like talking to the guys. I'm like, oh, did you see that movie? This guy's like whole chin pops off, and they were like, how are you? You're a tiny. I was really tiny in high school. You're like this tiny, fragile, little, high voiced. You know, brown girl, how are you into this like vile shit? And I was like, yeah, it makes me feel like home. It feels like home to me. So yeah, and especially getting back to the disability part of it, because more and more it became noticeable that I was different, even though again it was more on a subconscious level. If you meet me, you don't in in like in two seconds know that I have disabilities it's not until I stand up or talk to you for a length any length of time people will go like okay something's different about her um although right now I have a foot that's in a cast because I have a broken foot so that might be visible <laughs> um but apart from that like people wouldn't know but they knew something was different right and then able-bodied people and especially holistic people so people who are not on the spectrum well then like they know something's off on you but they'll so they'll treat you differently and it became worse and worse over the years so I just started finding my own community in horror where everyone was like that everyone was a little off everyone very we're, we're we you know uh uh, like they say in the craft, you know, we're we're the what was this? What what does she say when she gets out of the the bus? We're the freaks. No, we're the we're the strange ones, Mister. We're the strange, Mister. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when she said that, the craft, one of my all time favorite films during my teens. By the way, I would I would watch that on repeat. I had the VHS. Uh, that was my shit. Um. Yeah, no, that 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 was me. I felt at home in those characters. Yeah. Horror has has always has been and always will be home for me. And then the community around it is the same. It's always been so accepting because we all have again coming back to intersectionality, we have all these intersectional identities going on. So we all understand it might be different, but there is a lot of understanding. There's a lot of empathy going on. Whereas that is missing in a lot of the rest of the film industry and there's a lot of the rest of pop culture in general. It's the same reason why people who love anime have such strong community as well, right? Because they come from the same type of notion as for sci-fi as well, fantasy as well. We have all these very, very strong cliques, these very strong communities. Look at Star Trek and Star Wars, for instance. And I'm not talking about new generation incels, but like the 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 old school like the the mamas and papas right now that are teaching their kids how to speak uh, 
you know, any type of second or third language that is non-existent <laughs> in the in the world otherwise. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's in a fantastic genre and as a horror genre specifically. There's so much warmth in home, and um, and I found it through horror. Yeah, uh-huh. and I love that you talked about both an appreciation of the genre and just that connection, but also how you then started to connect it as being a person with a disability and really having, you know, because I think that we look at it kind of in, in two chunks, um, which is, you know, yeah, horror, it gives us a thrill. It, I think, helps us in a lot of ways think about and process just these really complex, scary um, issues and yeah. do it from a distance, do it in kind of a an entertaining most of the time, um, but unsettling way so that we can, again, have that, that safe way of, of thinking about, you know, issues that are that are challenging us, especially as we're we're kids, um, and as we're getting older. Um, but then certainly when you start to understand more um about who you are and your disability and you're starting to really uh think about your dynamic with friends and, and other people, then I think it can also take on lots of other I think meaning and layers um, because I know I've talked a lot about using horror as kind of like a language to talk about my uh, experience as someone with a disability because especially when I was young I there were so many things that I didn't know how to say I didn't know how to communicate but you know Reagan in The Exorcist and she's going through those medical appointments perfectly kind of just summed up how terrified I would be when I would have to go in you know for for specialist appointments and get you know testing done um and so I I really appreciate you kind of making those connects all right now going to the next kind of step are there particular genres that you've talked a little bit about asian horror um but are there genres that you've just always kind of leaned into more um yeah, for for me, definitely international horror more. So, because uh, I live in the West, right? So you get spoon fed uh, American and Western, like or European horror. Yeah. Um, but then looking at it at a broader sense, when I started discovering French extremity, for instance, that is amazing. Martyrs or it's martyrs in English. Uh, Lintier or Inside. I mean, man, I got to see those at festivals and those were shocking as fuck. And then I wanted more. Um, the same with uh, South American and especially 
for me, uh, Asian horror. Oh my goodness. I've gone on this worldwide finding 80s um, Indonesian horror that is crazy to look at because it's the storylines are insane. The effects are amazing. Um, there's always like this acting that's just oh, next level. And the same with like Indian uh, horror movie remakes. There's an Indian Chucky uh, from the 80s that is just, I think you can find it on YouTube even. It's called Papiguria. It's insane. It's almost a shot by shot remake of Child's Play, but they added a Bollywood uh, layer to it. Right. And it's, and the puppet, it's because they don't have the good, the good guy. It's like this personal looking puppet, which makes it scarier than the good guy doll. Um, but then at the same time, it's hilarious because there's these scenes that are just, you know, physically impossible, but they just act like, yeah, yeah, no, that happened. And it's, uh, there's one scene where the babysitter gets thrown from the kitchen window, three stories down. And, but in India, you have bars in front of the windows. So she could have not physically been thrown through those bars and ended up whole on the floor, you know, on the ground, but she did. <laughs> the doll threw her through the yeah. bars, apparently, and she ended up not flayed in pieces, but as one whole person on the floor. Um, and yeah, I mean, Korean horror is just so visceral. Yeah. So visceral. And they do not pull any punches. Mm -hmm. They, at the ending, there's no happy ending. It's, if there's a happy ending in a Korean horror movie, then it has been co-produced by a Western company, often American, yeah. uh, because they don't do happy endings in Korean horror movies in general. So if you have a happy ending, then there's something wrong, that it was not the original story. <laughs> and just the Japanese. The Japanese are crazy. I love what the Japanese do. They have a different way of thinking than the rest of the world. They're clearly an island that's been very isolated, that keeps itself isolated. And they produce stuff like House of from 77, where, yeah. you know, you have this, you know, piano that eats a girl and everyone's named for the trope that they represent. And you don't get to into you don't get an introduction of the characters in, until the halfway mark of the film, which is insane. Um but that type of filmmaking and something like Satoshi Kon is still visible in today's film. In fact, Christopher Nolan's whole film career is based on Satoshi Kon anime movies. Every movie that he has made has had scenes and techniques in them where we were all like, oh, wow, that Christopher Nolan thought of this. No, he stole it from Satoshi Kon. Like frame for frame, he stole this from an anime film done by someone else, um, which is amazing because we we applaud it when it's Christopher Nolan doing it. But Satoshi Kon died without all those acknowledgments, you know, to his name, which is yeah, it's it's a travesty if you ask me. Same goes for Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson's very unique style, you know, yeah. his signature filming style is stolen from an East Indian filmmaker. In fact, people have made side-by-side -side comparisons of how his films 
are are basically Indian movies. He has this obsession with India. He's he's admitted to this, and he's basically stolen the style of this particular filmmaker from India, who again has died without any acknowledgments and any praise. Uh, but Wes Anderson is raking in awards for using this exact style. Yeah, yeah, and it's I guess a a, a benefit to social media because Mm. now we can we now have platforms that we can call those things out but really celebrate these filmmakers that were using these innovative and awesome techniques and telling these just out of bounds Mm. stories and really changing the game so oh definitely and for me exploitation like if i look because horror is is the genre that tried everything first right Mm -hmm. even if you look at uh someone as oh what's his name he's one of my favorite special effects guy he's super funny he's in several movies as an actor as well uh tom savini tom savini i found it oh my goodness tom savini yes yes yeah, Tom Savini, like movies where he's participated in and like thought of new techniques, how to like rip bodies apart. I mean, those kind of movies are are my jam, like exploitation films. I just love the old grainy, no holds barred. There's no um, politeness to it. Just like we're just we're, we're telling a story. We're seeing these things in your face, in your face, no filter. And I, oh, I love that. I have several um, lists of like really niche films that I always look into, whether it is going really deep in the, into the extreme horror or going very deep into a Japanese line of found footage that is not never it hasn't been translated, but there are fan translations that you can download. You can buy and combine the movie with the fan translation and then follow the stories along. And it, it, I, I love those kind of things. Like, yes, put some labor of love in it and 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 let me find it and let me consume it. I, I applaud that more than everything. Yeah. And the internet, like you said before, has made the world such a small place where yeah. you can now indeed not only confront people, but also find people. There, there, there are places now where, where finally these makers are getting a platform at least to express themselves. Yeah, and I think that's really, from I think a disability perspective too, that's really important yeah. because it's such a valuable tool to have at, you know, our our grasp, um, to be able to you know, especially for for folks that don't have access to multiple avenues to share things to uh engage um i think it's it's invaluable um yeah awesome so because you have you've named a handful of films and i i think i also have your link to letterboxed um oh yes <laughs> i was going through and uh it was like wow i have so much that i absolutely must watch now because uh, all of this looks incredible um 
But thinking about disability representation, mm. I guess are there films that you kind of go- have go-tos to say this is actually something really interesting or are there films that you're like you know what here was a place that we've been we probably shouldn't go again (laughs) well basically anything made in the 70s and 80s and 90s is probably stuff that we shouldn't go to again a lot of things at least um when it comes to exploitation and a lot of the the rape revenge movies that were made then that were just rape revenge no plot there are a lot of ones that have plot and that have meaning but there were also a lot of movies that was just like how can we mangle a female body up to a point that it's not being recognized anymore right so the 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 guinea pig films or the flower of flesh and bloods and um, those types of films I I would not go back to that era that's nice for archive and for history and to look back at but yeah. not to make again there's no cultural nor political nor social uh, value to to have those in this particular time yeah however uh, movies that we should be looking at is uh, and I'm going to start with subtle horror and with subtle horror I would mean uh, a movie where there's definitely a monster, there's definitely horrific stuff happening, but if you look at it closely, it's not about the horror, it's about the story, the love story maybe behind it, or the drama behind it, and one of those is Inhuman Kiss, which is a Thai movie, it's available on Netflix right now. Yes, yes, it's yes. Yeah, it's on many of my lists, I, I, I always name it to people if they want to if they want to see something unconventionally horror, um, yes. Inhuman Kiss is almost a Twilight-like story, but not mm-hmm. with the same quality, obviously better quality than that. It's a Thai story, and it's about a, I think it's called a cacao, or a kraku. I'm, I'm very, I'm butchering the, the language right now, but there's a demon in Southeast Asia. Uh, Malaysians believe in it, Filipinos believe in it, uh, Thai believe in it. Uh, Indonesians also have movies about it and it's basically a curse on a woman during the day she's just normally a woman and at night she falls asleep and her body her head detaches with all of her internal organs attached from her body and then she goes out and like eats people like sucks babies dry from blood and stuff like that so it's almost like a succubus type of story but it's a a floating head with internal organs hanging from it which is insane (laughs) to picture that now put that in a in a twilight love story with a triangle like a tri- love triangle and then layer on top of that a patriarchal suppression uh, storyline as well that's what yeah. inhuman cases uh, to me um secondly um so it has to do with this otherness right and she has something going on but she isn't even can she can't even explain and it happened to her and she's not responsible for it but it is something that is quote-unquote affecting her environment which a lot of people with disabilities would be able to empathize with because sometimes I mean, and and I hope for a lot of a lot of us that our families are not like this, but a lot of families might see you as a burden or, oh, we can't do this thing sure. because, you know, this person can't do X, Y, or Z. 
Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of empathy to be had with this main character, especially because she has this thing that disables her from being, quote unquote, you know, a normal human being or a socially accepted human being. Um, and that doesn't matter to our, uh, you know, our love interests in this film. So that's very interesting to see. Then you have Booboo, which is something that a lot of people obviously mentioned probably, but I'm going to mention it as a South Asian, South Asian person myself. It's a gorgeous story. Um, I think that was a breakthrough in Indian cinema. It's not a Bollywood film. It's an independently made, female-made, uh, female horror story. Uh, and it has so many layers to it. And it, it talks about, you know, child marriage, abuse, sexual abuse. So a lot of trigger warnings on that one. But then it comes out, you have this main character and she doesn't mind being the villain of the story. If that's the thing that keeps her community safe. And she goes through so much trauma and she is literally disabled but because of it as well. But she sees it as her strength, not her um, her failing. And especially in a society as India, where you know, if if you become disabled or if you don't obey your husband or if, you're, if you do things against the family honor that you get punished or scrutinized for, having this very strong female character go through all these things and then take charge, have people fear her, is just gorgeous to see in my. Uh, in my eyes. So yeah, Bulbul also on Netflix. Um, let's see, because I had a list in my head and then I started talking and <laughs> all of a sudden my brain is uh, stopped braining. Um, I think like there's there's the standard t- uh, titles that everyone probably says like Titan or Freaks or um, maybe even Spider Baby or um Maybe Phantom of the Opera, which is a very popular one to, to mention as well. Elephant Man, obviously. Ice Without a Face yeah. is a really famous one. Um, I, you already mentioned uh, Quiet Place by John Krasinski, which is very, like, in a modern way, a really interesting one. Mm, I think you could even mention a Rocky Horror uh, Picture Show in a way. Yeah. I'm trying to think there is oh there's this uh Lao film I think the the good sister the other sister no oh my god I was on a panel with the maker and it, the movie is amazing and I forgot the name it's from Loesh uh it's a Lao film from uh, Laos and oh my goodness I think it's it's it might be the, the good sister. Okay. Um, the other sister. I'll I'll look it up and we'll maybe we just put it as a note. Um. Did you find it? Is it? It's not dearest sister. Dearest sister. That's the one. Thank you. Yes. Dearest sister. Yeah. So that has uh. Um, a main character who's disabled and um, mm-hmm. also a whole family dynamic. There is colonialism that comes into play. There is uh, intricate familial stories that come into play. Maddie Doe, 
love Maddie Doe, amazing person, is also on the panels of Access for um mm-hmm. if you've played us back and has an amazing view. Did did another movie called The Long Walk, which also um brings in La Lao Laotian um culture and mythology together with all these intricate layers and intersectional um, identities so definitely definitely recommend uh, those two movies i'm trying to think there's probably a whole bunch of korean or japanese movies i would be able to name but just off the top of my head right now i would say house 77 house that i mentioned before um i would definitely say uh ichi the killer even though that movie is so fucked up definitely on my list of movies uh with people with disabilities um if i look at korean movies um i think a lot of people lean to stuff like tale of two sisters probably but i would go with something like the wailing Yes, I love the whaling. Yeah, the whaling, so incredible. And um, there's so much happening at the same time because it's not only you know uh, uh, a possession movie and a ghost movie and a zombie movie, and then there's so many layers to it. It's just insane. It's they don't stick to one genre. There's comedy in there. There is yeah. family drama in there. So. Yeah, the the whaling does that so so well. Um, I'm trying to think of which one else. I know so one. Maybe that, yeah, yeah. I know one I've pulled out a lot recently. Um, is Tetsuo. Um, <gasps> yeah, Iron Man Tetsuo. Yes, um, and then following on that, you could also mention Akira even. Yeah, Tetsuo and Akira, those are very close to each other. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I would even go as far as saying Tetsuo 2 and mm. 3 as well, or um, uh, maybe even, um, uh, was it Ballet of Bullets? Bullet Ballet? One of them is called. I, I think it's Ballet of Bullets. That's ballet sounds bullets. right. Yeah. Oh, no, definitely. And then if you look at Akira, then you could definitely add into that Evangelion. Um, and from Because <laughs> Evangelion has a lot to do, with, obviously, with mental health as well, mm-hmm. but also with disability, with, with other types of disability. So, yeah, oh, man, then you roll into a whole different world. It, look, if we had hours and hours to go and I... Yeah. But definitely check out my my letterbox because I have so many lists on there, and I could I could probably make a specific list for this podcast uh, where yeah. I, I I put in all the all the stuff that I mentioned and a little bit more. I love making lists, so I'm, I'm more than happy to to do that. <laughs> oh, that would be incredible! And I will make sure to link your letterbox in the show notes because yes, it is chocked full of amazing stuff um yeah i mean i think what is incredible and just in you know just in talking about like all these various films 
one thing that I always am struck by is that we are at such an interesting place in how we we recommend these films because and, and you mentioned it we we're at a place now where we can really look at talking about disability through a lens of, of otherness so it's not just here's a character in a wheelchair here's a character that is blind here's a character that is deaf obviously those are like important yes we want those um but now we can also look at these other films that really touch on themes and ideas that are connected to I always hate to say like the disability experience because that makes it sound like it's a monolith and an absolute yeah. 100% is not, not in any way shape yeah. or form a monolith but I think that there are so many things in communicating about disability that are really about just day-to-day -day experience of isolation of disability of, yeah. of like uh difficulties of access of yeah the unique uh relationships that we may have with family um and and caregivers yeah yeah um yeah i think one thing that's really interesting now and i talked about this in a recent episode talking about the taking of deborah logan which is we're now i think especially here in the u.s but i think you're seeing it elsewhere a little bit too um you know just as our demographic changes we yeah. have that aging demographic that's getting larger and larger and we're hitting that what they commonly refer to as the caregiving crisis yeah. um we disability is kind of a something that is a life experience everyone is going to at some point experience health yeah. issues um etc and a lot of that's going to be associated with age um yeah. and so i think we're seeing more of those films like the taking of deborah logan relic um things that are not just here's a you know an old crazy person it's actually looking at the impact of these degenerative and, and progressive diseases mm -hmm. on on them and and on the people around them so it's wonderful to see again how horror is on the forefront of this um in in so many ways and creating that space where some of those complex stories can exist um so yes absolutely i think we can have these conversations all the time because the the landscape is constantly i think evolving um i guess to kind of wrap things up, what to you, what 
And I, this is a question I've wanted to ask of lots of folks, and, and I struggle with how to really get at the heart of it. Do you feel that representation, is there an example that you can speak to where a, a particular film um, or or something, a piece of media has truly influenced or changed kind of a perspective of disability. Mm, I think that's very interesting. Yes. Uh, and I wanted to say the title and it flew out of my mouth immediately. Oh my God. <laughs> Damn you, mind. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a particular um, a movie I was thinking about has um, well, no, let's 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 pull it towards a book. Um, I I'm a very active reader as well. I read, read a lot of different genres, uh, but specifically horror, fantasy, and sci-fi are my favorites. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot happening on book talk, as they would call it, at the book TikTok for book lovers. Um, and there is a, romance is very particularly very popular there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fanfic, obviously, going around, but romance and what they call spicy books, so romance with that, spicy scenes, uh, they, uh, they're very popular. There is a particular writer, I think her name is Talia Hibbert, um, who has written a trio of romance books, slice of life, romance with a little bit of spice, as they would call it. And all three different books, are, are, they're about three sisters, all the three sisters, each of them has a different invisible disability. Okay. Uh, one of them has fibromyalgia, which is something I suffer from, unfortunately. Um, uh, one of them, I think, ha- is on the spectrum, and one of them has a different thing going on. Seeing that in mainstream and how mainstream these books are being considered was very new for me and then seeing that back I think it was a new fantasy book that came out I think called the fourth wing where the main character has elder dollars uh, syndrome it's not specifically named that way which they have all the symptoms when it comes mm-hmm. to it uh, and I think the writer is Rebecca Yaros it's very juvenile it's a very like YA type of fantasy book uh, you know, reminiscent almost of like Hunger Games, but with dragons or something of the sort. Um, but the fact that now these are like New York bestsellers, they're not niche books anymore. Yeah. Um, I think that's amazing. I, I think that where I see representation the most and that impacted me the most is an anime. There's horror anime and just anime in general where... Um, there's always been representation, whether it's queer representation, um, you know, color and disability as well, where it does not consume the whole character arc of that particular person. They just happen to have that disability and it affects how they go through life, but it's not their whole character or personality. And I think anime did that first, weirdly enough. Um, um so yeah 
I when for me growing up, a lot of different anime characters who we would then consider maybe weird, but actually had disabilities and clearly like openly had disabilities. Um, and being able to see that they were being accepted in all these different universes and worlds that I was following, that made me feel home. And yeah, yeah, that's so, as a kid, that those were the first places for me. Like I was watching all these horror anime, for instance, but you know, they had a home because it wasn't about their disability. They They were just different than others. So they found their community. Even if you look at something like as big as One Piece, for instance, you know, all of them have something going on, but they found mm -hmm. home together. They're weird together. And right. that's what makes their bond so strong. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's just something I always think about because I don't, we spend so much time talking about the importance of showcasing these stories um, and, and giving them their their space but i i always you know especially for folks that are non-disabled like have you mm -hmm. seen something that really made you stop and think like oh i hadn't really thought about it that way um this is really interesting so i know um for kind of non-horror folks too mm. like superhero the big yeah. movies like yeah a lot of superheroes would be disabled yeah so uh you know that's definitely yeah i mean especially with x-men um, oh my god i was obsessed with x-men 94 as mm -hmm. a kid no 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 uh, Rogue was my favorite character. Actually, okay. if we talk about specific characters with disabilities that have a large impact in my life, thank you, you triggered a memory for me. It is Rogue from the X-Men. Rogue and um, oh, what's what's her, her love interest name? Remy with the cards, Gambit. Yeah. Rogue and Gambit's story was so heartbreaking, but at the same time, I felt so spoken to by rogue's character in general she has all these superpowers but she's she is like just broken down by the trauma of it all and yep. just touching people and knowing too much and seeing too much and thinking too much and then not being able to touch anyone because they get absorbed into her and i'm just like oh I, mm. yeah that spoke to me definitely Definitely. When I was a little kid watching the the 94 uh, X-Men uh, series, man, I would stop doing whatever I was doing to, to watch those. Those yeah. and Spider-Man and Batman eventually as well, the animated series with yes. um, uh, Kevin Conroy doing the, yeah. the Batman voice and the first Harlequin appearance in, in the series as well. Oh man, it's look. You said you said superheroes, and it's, it instantly triggered memories for me. Now, definitely, definitely, and also Spider Man because he was always the weirdo in school, right? He's different, but yeah. no one can lay their finger on why. So he's being bullied, he's being othered, and but at the same time, this guy's he's a superhero. He's a literal superhero. 
and no one realizes because he's living through all of that and not telling anyone, which is also part of the disability, you know, again, not a monolith, but disability experience for a lot of us where you go through stuff and you don't want to burden others. So you keep quiet or you just go through a day and people don't realize that you doing those five things is the same as someone else doing 50 things because of the amount of spoons that you have, you know? Yeah. It's uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's the idea. I mean, it's, it's masking. It's how we have to, you know, we, we have to fight to kind of quote unquote blend in and, um, you know, like you said, not be a burden, not stick out, not have our disability either be known or, mm. you know, cause any kind of yeah. issue. So, yeah, I I think about that a lot because constantly, well, not constantly, that's an over-exaggeration, at least in my personal experience, but I'm sure other people probably get this a lot more, but you'll hear people online say, well, why this doesn't, this has nothing to do with disability, or this doesn't have anything to do with being part of the LGBTQ community. This isn't Mm -hmm. representation. And you, you know, and it will be something like X-Men, um, or something that really like wasn't explicitly laid out that way, something that really spoke to us, maybe even as kids. Yeah. But talking about the importance of now going back and appreciating that this spoke to us because of that. Um and emphasizing that now and celebrating it now, talk about it now, talking about it now is gonna help other kids discover it. And be like, yeah, I see that too. That's really cool. Um, so I love that. I love that. Well, Robbie, thank you so much. This has been an incredible conversation. Um, I feel like I have so many movies that I need to watch. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I am so thrilled that you you took the time to come because I was just really struck by what you shared at Access Horror as part of the panels and and um I thought yeah, I really hope that she'll come on and we'll <laughs> uh, talk a little bit about you know some different components of why it's important to have these conversations. Definitely, definitely. Well, thank you so much for, you know, asking me to come on. I love having these conversations. I love doing these, uh, these types of uh, coming together, just brainstorming about what the importance is with, and just, you know, geeking out on pop culture in general. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, it's, it's been lovely having this conversation with you. Definitely. Wonderful. So where can folks find you online? Um, if they oh. want to, if they want to hit you up on social media, if they want to read anything that you've written, where can folks find you? So I am on all social media, all of them, <laughs> but I am most active, I think, on Instagram at the moment. I also have a Mastodon account, a Blue Side Social, a TikTok account, whatever you name it, I have it. 
And my username <laughs> on all of them is Arpish. That is R P I S H Arpish. Um, that's also my company name, and I just do really good branding. So every everything is Arpish. However, if you want to see where I'm featured, or if I've written anything, or if I've been on TV, or if I've presented anything, you can go to rabiasitabi.com which is like my personal page, not my company page. And then there's a button called Featureds. And I post up there whenever I've been on a podcast or if I've written anything for Ghouls magazine, for instance, or a panel that I've been on. So this podcast definitely will go up there as soon as it's out. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, follow me online. I think uh, Letterbox is a good way to follow what I'm doing. I am um, the marketing uh, director for Imagine Fantastic Film Festival in the Netherlands, as well as the Kaboom uh, International Film Festival, Film Animation Film Festival. So I do a lot with film and, and festivals as well. And uh, yeah, I have a lot of uh, speaking gigs coming up. So feel free to follow what I'm doing online. I post mostly stories, not, not posts because I work so much in socials that I don't have time for my own. Uh, and other than that, if I'm anywhere else, like podcast, maybe with Ariel or any of my other stuff, uh, then I post it up on uh, on my socials as well. I have a website, but it's from the end of construction. It's the Cultured Curator, which is me and a bunch of people uh, with uh, intersectional identities that write about films, that write about horror and other things as well, theater, food, traveling. Uh, but currently that's under construction. So I'll post it up on my uh, links. Wonderful. And all of that will be in the show notes. So absolutely um, follow Rabia, just a wealth of wonderful content. Um, and yes, please know that you are welcome back anytime. Um, this has been absolutely incredible and thank you again and until next time the anatomy of a scream pod squad